Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer, and I love all things tech. And today, I'm going to tackle a topic suggested by listener Jesse. So shout out to Jesse. Jesse wanted to know more about MIDI. What is MIDI? How does it work? Why is it nearly synonymous with computer music? And is it actually a type of music in of itself? I'm going to tackle that last question first because that was just an easy setup. While some people use MIDI as shorthand for computer music, the two are not exactly the same thing. MIDI stands for Musical Instrument Digital Interface, and it's a protocol, a set of rules that allows a synthesizer or MIDI controller to send data to a computer or other synthesizers in a meaningful way. And in fact, no sound is sent through MIDI at all, which might seem a little strange. To understand MIDI and how it works, it first behooves us to go into a little history on synthesizers in general, starting with analog synthesizers. Now, an analog synthesizer is an electronic musical instrument that makes use of various components to produce and shape sound. These components can be modular. In fact, the earliest analog synthesizers were entirely modular. You had to get a whole bunch of different components and patch them together with cables, this is what we call patches, in order to make any sort of meaningful sound at all. And certain modules are in charge of creating certain effects or sounds. Modules can include stuff like oscillators, filters, and voltage control amplifiers. Typically, a synthesizer has, at minimum, three basic modules. The first is an oscillator. The oscillator's job is to create a bass tone. This tone is what the rest of the modules can shape to create the different pitches and effects that change the shape of the sound. An oscillator causes energy to move between two states at a particular frequency. Now, this is easiest to imagine, I think, with a physical oscillator, like a pendulum. If you push a pendulum, it will begin to swing or oscillate. And one full swing is one full oscillation. At the height of its swing, all of the energy in the system is potential energy, right? It's not moving, it's at its highest point. That energy converts into kinetic energy as gravity takes hold and the pendulum swings downward. This swinging is the oscillation, but oscillators will eventually run out of energy due to loss in the system. This is that law of thermodynamics. In this physical example, friction cuts down on the amount of energy within the system. It actually means that you're losing energy out of the system due to heat. In circuits, oscillators lose energy due to electrical resistance, so it's very similar. The point being that unless you continue to pour energy back into the system, it will eventually run down because it will lose enough energy so it doesn't perpetuate itself anymore. Now to get into the physics of oscillators would take up a bit more time, so let's just leave it at the idea that there is a component within an analog synthesizer that generates a steady frequency that serves as the baseline for all other modules in the synthesizer. The second component in a typical synthesizer is the mechanism for controlling the oscillator, which is usually a keyboard, similar to one on a piano. You could use other means to change the waveform, though. For example, theremins use fluctuations in the electromagnetic field to affect the baseline waveform. Though precise, complete control of the signal isn't really possible with such an instrument, even under the control of a skilled player. The keyboard, or pitch wheel, or whatever can set the oscillator's frequency, 
will affect the pitch. The frequency of a sound and how we perceive that sound are directly related. Lower frequencies produce lower pitch sounds. Human hearing ranges from about 20 hertz or 20 cycles of a sound wave per second up to 20,000 hertz. As we get older, like me, those upper ranges start to get harder for us to perceive. This is the principle behind some anti-youth, anti-loitering strategies supposedly employed by certain convenience store owners, which have reportedly resorted to playing very high-pitched sounds that adults can't really hear because they've lost that ability, they've lost that range of hearing, but those lousy kids and that mangy mutt can totally hear it and it irritates the heck out of them so they don't stick around your store for too long. The third component found in typical synthesizers would be the filters and effects you can apply to the sound's waveform to change the nature of the sound, the feel of it. These filters let you select which elements of the frequency can pass through to an amplifier so that it can hit a speaker and be heard. By gatekeeping elements of frequencies, you can change that shape or nature of a sound, which is why you can have a synthesizer take on many different sounds, even though it's starting with the same basic waveform. Beyond frequency, or pitch, and amplitude, or volume, you can also manipulate the change in volume over the lifespan of a sound. So, if you press down on a piano key quickly and firmly, you'll notice that the sound is initially loud and then fades off, and when you let up off the piano key, it will eventually stop. If you mess with the sustain pedals, you can push down that same key with the same force and hear it play out a little differently. And we describe this process with synthesizers by dividing it up into phases, and they're called attack, decay, sustain, and release, or ADSR. The attack describes the time it takes from the press of a key, or the null sound, zero volume, to reach the peak of that key's volume. The decay is the time it takes to go from the peak of the volume to a designated sustain level. The sustain is the volume of sound that should play until the respective key is released by the player. The release time is the amount of time it takes for the sustained volume to decay to null again. The various effects on synthesizers can change these elements, creating louder or softer sustains. You could even have a sustain that gets louder than the attack if you wanted to. And you could have longer or shorter decay times and tons more effects. It helps create a more dynamic experience with a synthesized instrument. After the synthesizer manipulates the basic waveform based on the keys pressed or however you're controlling the pitch and the various filters or effects that are in play, it sends the electrical signal to an amplifier. The amplifier's job is to control the volume of the played sound, typically by passing it through a series of what are called envelope controls. That goes back to that ADSR I was talking about. Envelope controls are essentially tables of data points that describe the nature of the sound generated when a key is pressed. Early synthesizers used actual, physically distinct modules to control all this, like I said before, and you would hook all these modules up to a keyboard with various patch wires, and you would manipulate various switches and knobs to coax the sound you wanted out of the synthesizer. And if you didn't get the sound you wanted, you might have to add additional components to change things up. Now, the history of synthesizers is somewhat debatable, and that's because people disagree over what actually counts as a synthesizer. Some say that the telharmonium should count. The telharmonium, also known as the dynamophone, which I swear sounds like something Homer Simpson would say, was invented by Thaddeus Cahill. 
in the 1890s. It was an electric organ that could send music electronically across telephone networks. Now, his goal was to create an instrument capable of creating perfect tones consistently. Physical musical instruments need to be tuned, and they can change their tones based upon variables like temperature and humidity, not to mention the skill of the person playing. But the telharmonium would harness electricity to create pitch-perfect tones over and over again. Or so was the idea. But the telharmonium didn't allow the player to put precise controls on the quality of a sound, something that some argue should be a basic trait of synthesizers, so they say, well, it shouldn't count. The theremin, which came out in 1919, also fails in this regard. Uh, French inventors Edouard Couplot and Armand Givlet created a piano with electronic components in 1929 that comes closer to the definition many accept as canon for synthesizers. The first device to actually use the word synthesizer appears to have been the RCA Electronic Music Synthesizer Mark I, which debuted in 1956 and used tuning forks to generate tones. It read music from a strip of paper tape that had holes punched into it, so sort of like a player piano. But if we're talking modern synthesizers, we got to talk about Robert Moog, the genius behind the Moog synthesizer. I've done a full episode about Moog in the past, so I'm not going to dwell on it too much here. I'll just add that he created the first commercial th- synthesizer by modern standards in 1964, and it was the Moog's 900 series modular systems. One big limitation in most analog synthesizers is in the number of notes it can play simultaneously. Many analog synthesizers are monophonic, meaning they can only produce one tone at a time. If you held down two keys, you would not get two tones. If you want to create a polyphonic sound, the way you could with, say, a piano, you'd have to either get a whole bunch of musicians together, each playing one section of a polyphonic piece on their own Moog synthesizer or whichever analog synthesizer they're using, all in time with one another, or you'd have to record multiple tracks to fill in the tones. So each track would represent a different monophonic melody, and played together, you would get the polyphonic effect. Eventually, some analog synthesizers supported polyphonic tones at a limited level. For example, four notes played simultaneously, and they tended to be incredibly expensive. As for digital synthesizers, which are at their hearts computers working with bits, that is good old zeros and ones of machine language, those trace their history back to research in the late 50s, but commercial digital synthesizers really got their start in the 1980s. Next craze, new wave. Like analog synthesizers, they generate or modulate waveforms to create sounds. The process from a very high level is similar, but the details are different. And digital synthesizers can do some things that analog synthesizers either cannot do or cannot do very well. For example, while an analog synthesizer might be monophonic or have limited polyphonic capabilities, a basic digital synthesizer could have a polyphony, if you like, of 64 notes being played simultaneously. Although I should add that that depends also on how many voices you're playing on this synthesizer. With each voice, you reduce the number of notes that can be played simultaneously because each voice gets a certain number of notes dedicated to it. That being said, there's no guarantee that a digital synthesizer will sound better than an analog one. It could, Or it might not. It all depends upon build quality of the two synthesizers. 
Sound quality relies on more than just the number of options you have when you're shaping sound. All right, so that's the basic info on synthesizers. Now let's talk about MIDI. In the early 1980s, a man named Dave Smith saw the need for a universal standard that would allow synthesizers to send data to other instruments or to computers. This would give musicians unprecedented options when making music, including new ways to manipulate sound. Synthesizers were versatile, but no two models were exactly alike, particularly from different manufacturers. One model might have a really cool feature that other synthesizers lacked, but fall short on a completely different feature. A universal protocol could let a musician chain together multiple instruments or perform additional processes on sound at the computer level. Related to this problem is one of competing proprietary approaches to musical interfaces. Without a standard, each synthesizer manufacturer would be compelled to produce its own interface with other synthesizers and with computers. In fact, such standards did exist. They weren't they weren't really standards. They were proprietary approaches that were unique to specific manufacturers, like Roland, for example, or Yamaha. Then you would have a bunch of competing technologies on the market that more likely than not would be impossible to chain together. So you'd be locked into one ecosystem. You would have to be all in on Roland or all in on Moog or all in on Yamaha. You couldn't mix and match because they wouldn't be able to talk to each other. It's sort of like the early days of computing before ARPANET came along. And you had a set of protocols that would let computers talk to each other. Same basic problem existed at at the early 1980s. It was a huge mess for musicians and producers. So a universal standard would set a level playing field, give musicians and producers the greatest number of options when creating music, and avoid fragmentation of the market. Dave Smith first proposed such a standard in 1981 at a meeting of the Audio Engineering Society, and he called his first approach the Universal Synthesizer Interface. Smith recognized that while manufacturers were able to create systems that would allow you to control multiple synthesizers made by that manufacturer, there was still no standard that would allow for interoperability. And manufacturers were concerned that this issue was costing them customers by creating this frustrating environment. Two years later, he would release the first version of the MIDI protocol. So this is 1983. He didn't develop the protocol all by himself. Major synthesizer companies like Roland, Yamaha, and several others were all involved in designing the set of rules and standards. It was a pretty remarkable display of competitors working together to create a technology that would benefit the entire industry, not just one company within it. The designers decided that MIDI would send information as a list of events or messages to instruct a device how to make a certain type of sound. Now again, this wasn't a music file or any other form of music, but rather directions the recipient would follow to generate the appropriate sound. I'll talk about some of the typical MIDI messages in the next section, but first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Here are a few basic messages the MIDI protocol defined. Note on. This is a message that indicates a note has been initiated, which 
it's pretty self-explanatory by the name. So on a keyboard, this would be when a key has been pressed. But other instruments can also have MIDI ports on them, so it could also mean a guitar string is strummed or a clarinet has produced a note. The instructions tell the device receiving this data which note has been played and the velocity of the note. Velocity equals how hard the note was played. So with a piano key, it relates to volume. For example, if you press the key faster, it indicates a harder strike, which means that the note should be louder. Not every MIDI keyboard is capable of actually recording that information, but a lot of them are. They have that velocity-sensitive keys, so you can actually record that info. Note off is a similar message. It tells when the receiving device uh, that a played note has ended. So it might be when you have released a key or when vibrations stop along a string. And that message says, all right, at this point, stop playing a note because there's no longer uh, a thing that's generating that sound. Polyphonic key pressure is another instruction that tells the receiving device how hard a key was pressed once it bottoms out in its lowest position. Some keyboards use this to add effects to notes, such as vibrato. Vibrato, by the way, that's a rapid variation in pitch. So you add a, a, a quick oscillation in pitch to create vibrato. It adds a, a richness to sound. Also, singers use it to cover up the fact that they can't hit a note. That's a little shade I'm throwing right there. Also, I do this too, so. Control change is a message that indicates that some sort of controller has been activated to affect the quality of a sound. Controllers can take many forms. You could have pedals, you could have knobs. The control change message contains information that indicates which controller was used and assigns a value from 0 to 127 or 1 to 128, depending upon the implementation, to describe the magnitude of this change. The pitch wheel change message records instances of pitch wheel use. That's not useful at all, is it? A pitch wheel is a control that allows a musician to affect the pitch of a played note, and they can control it dynamically. This creates the effect of bending a musical note. So if you've ever heard a, a musical piece where a note is played and then starts to shift to a different pitch without a new note being played, that's kind of what a pitch wheel is able to do. And then there are system-exclusive, or SysX, messages. This allows for custom patches and effects. Manufacturers could use these messages to allow a MIDI controller to take advantage of unique features of their instruments, for example. So let's say you're a manufacturer and you've got a synthesizer that has a new type of effect and no other synthesizers have this. It's proprietary. You've got this cool effect that no one else has been able to replicate. The SysX feature would allow you to designate a method for a MIDI controller to engage that feature without sharing it to everybody else. Otherwise, you'd have a keyboard that has a really cool ability, but you'd never be able to use it through a MIDI controller because there'd be no way to designate that command, right? You have your own proprietary effect. If you don't create a command for it in MIDI, then the controller won't have any instructions it can send to the synthesizer to replicate it. Now, you could still get the effect by working with the synthesizer directly, but you wouldn't be able to send those MIDI instructions to any other device because there wouldn't there wouldn't be language to take care of that particular instance. SysX messages allowed for these exceptions, these custom patches. A MIDI file has the extension MID or MID. If you could read these files in natural language, like if you were able to, to translate this as a set of instructions, they would seem like really detailed 
instructions on how to play a certain piece of music. Not just what the notes are, but how to play those notes. It would be similar to reading sheet music, but only if the sheet music contained all sorts of minutiae about the performance of the piece. And it's not just how that one piece should be performed, it's how that piece actually was performed once upon a time. So it means you're not just transcribing music. You are actually recreating a performance of a musical piece. And you could actually create a MID file by playing a MIDI-enabled musical instrument connected to a computer. It's actually sequencing your playing as you play it. So you are creating a precise record on how to play the same piece of music the exact same way in the future. So again, it's not a recording. It's a set of instructions saying, if you want to play what I just played the way I played it, follow these instructions exactly, and it'll be as if I were playing it all over again. Which is pretty cool all by itself, but an additional benefit of the MIDI system is that you can modify those instructions in different ways without affecting everything. So, for example, if you record a piece of music in some sort of conventional format, and you then play it at a faster speed, you're going to increase the pitch. If I recorded a performance onto a physical medium like a vinyl record, and then I played the record back at a speed that was one and a half times faster than what a normal playback would be, I sounded like a chipmunk. But with mid files, you can increase the speed of a playback without affecting the pitch. You aren't speeding up a recording of a performance, but rather decreasing the amount of time between instructions. And so you can change the tempo of music easily without also changing the pitch of the recording. Or if you want to change the pitch, you could do that too. You could take the instructions and apply a new instruction to shift the playback into a different key of music. The tempo would be the same, but the key would be completely different. You could take music that was programmed in a major key and you could flip it to a minor key. Or you could take a song and shift the pitch down or up to better suit someone's voice. If you've ever gone to karaoke and the karaoke machine had an option to change the pitch, to pitch something up or down so it's closer to your vocal range, you've experienced this. The karaoke machine is using MIDI files to recreate a song, and then you can dynamically tell it, hey, I need this pitched up or pitched down so I can actually rock out with Hit Me With Your Best Shot and make sure it's in my vocal range. Another big benefit of the mid file format is file size. Because there's no recorded media in the file, the file sizes are relatively small. So a minute of compressed audio, like an MP3, might end up being about 10 megabytes of data. But if you take a MIDI file, and it represents the exact same amount of sound, it's a minute worth of sound, although, again, remember, there's no recorded sound in a MIDI file, it just represents that, that would only take up 10 kilobytes of space. So much smaller file sizes. And a lot of data gets packed into those small files. The MIDI protocol supports a total of 128 notes, ranging from the C five, five octaves below middle C, all the way up to the G 10 octaves above middle C. Up to 16 separate devices can be controlled through a single chain, or more if you want multiple devices to produce the same response. So, for example, if you want both a piano and a clarinet to play back the same melody line and a piece of music, they could each follow the exact same set of instructions, and they would count as just one channel of data rather than two channels of data. You would just put those in serial with each other, and you could still divide up the rest of the channels among other instruments. In addition to this, you can have up to 128 voice or effect settings called programs. These are the various modifiers that can change the shape of the sound in various ways. 
to keep everything synchronized across multiple instruments, not to mention other elements that I'll talk about later, MIDI has support for built-in clock pulses. The clock pulses make sure that each component in the overall system is on the same starting point. If the MIDI standard didn't have this, there'd be no way to synchronize a controller to manipulate multiple devices and have them work in harmony with each other. They would all start to get off time with each other and you would end up with a huge mess. So you have to have this clock pulse feature to make sure every single instrument in the system is synced with each other. The way you generate a MIDI file is using either a MIDI-enabled synthesizer, which doesn't have to be a keyboard, but more frequently than not, it is a keyboard, or a MIDI controller. So what's the difference? Well, synthesizers can create sound while they simultaneously generate MIDI data. They have a sound generator built into the device. They become workstations. A MIDI controller only generates the data. So many MIDI controllers look like musical keyboards, but they do not generate any music when you play them uh, on their own. So you're not like tickling the keys and hearing music back unless you've already hooked it up to a computer and the computer's sound card is able to generate the music in real time back to you. So what's the whole point? Well, imagine that you have your MIDI controller keyboard in front of you and you've used cables to connect your controller to several other devices, such as a MIDI-enabled drum machine, a MIDI-enabled synthesizer, uh, an electronic clarinet. You've mapped your MIDI controller keyboard keys to each of those connected components so that when you play one section of the keyboard, you're controlling one of them. Like, let's say that you've got 64 keys, and the bottom few, you've got maybe the bottom 16, that controls the drum pad. And then the other two sections control the uh, the synthesizer and the top section controls the electronic clarinet. That would be one way of doing this. So while the controller itself doesn't generate sound, the instructions it sends to each of those components makes those components make the sound. So you really just have a control system. It's really no different from like a joystick or a mouse. It's an input device. And your output devices happen to be these other components. So think of it in that sense. When you think of MIDI controllers and synthesizers as very specialized computers, it starts to be a little easier to understand. So you've just increased the number of instruments you can simultaneously control using a single MIDI controller connected to them. You could also use one of these silent controllers to create a MIDI file on a computer, but unless you were playing that music back on the computer, it would be really hard to hear how it was turning out. It would be difficult to see if, in fact, what you were doing was what you wanted. So most MIDI sequencers, which are what we call the programs that translate the actions you take into the mathematical data that is a MIDI file, uh, most of them have playback so that you can actually hear what's happening while you're playing. Uh, otherwise, it would be really difficult to figure out if you were doing things correctly. And as I say, the process is called sequencing. So the sequencer is the tool that records all those messages, the messages that are in the, they're in eight bits per message. So eight bits is a byte. Each message is made up of a byte. And uh, the sequencer maps those instructions out against a timeline. It records when a note is played and at what velocity, what strength, as well as any effects that were on the note at that time of it being played. And sequencers can be standalone programs. They can be built directly into musical instruments. They can also be independent pieces of hardware. So you could have a sequencer that is its own individual uh, electronic unit. 
and you plug into it. Or a sequencer could be built into a synthesizer, or a sequencer could be a piece of software running on a computer. You have lots of different options. So let's say you've got a MIDI-enabled synthesizer, and you want to record to a MID file. What else do you need? Well, if it's a keyboard that also has a MIDI sequencer in it, then you have a workstation. You've got everything you need right there. You could just record it to the device. If it's not, if it's a synthesizer that has a MIDI output but does not have a MIDI sequencer itself, you could get a hardware sequencer. Those tend to be a little expensive, but you get what you pay for. You could find low-cost software sequencers on a computer, and then you could hook up your synthesizer via cable to the computer, uh, depending upon... How old we're talking, like if you're using an ancient synthesizer and an ancient computer, you'll be using a specific MIDI cable for that. These days we mostly use USB. I'll tell you more about cables in just a minute. And you can look at all sort of options in between. So expensive hardware, cheap software, and then there's a whole bunch of different stuff in in between. Also, keyboards that have the MIDI sequencers built into them, those can range from being fairly reasonably priced to really expensive if you want something that is top of the line. We're talking hundreds of dollars in those cases, but that's the kind of stuff that professionals will use if they are arranging music and they're trying to record stuff. Some older MIDI keyboards could push MIDI data out through a port, but wouldn't play sound while doing so. So instead, you'd have to listen to the music as it plays on your computer's sound card. Sound cards used to be a much bigger deal back in the 90s, back when putting together a computer could become an enormous headache because you had lots of choices in graphics cards, sound cards, CPUs. Not all of them were compatible with each other, so sometimes you would find that the build you had selected didn't actually work because there were incompatibilities between the various components. It was a nightmare. But uh those days are mostly behind us. These days, it's a lot easier to build a machine. And it the need for a, a discrete sound card has decreased because computers can handle a lot of this using their standard hardware these days. But back in the 90s, you needed very specific types of hardware. Roland made an amazing sound card. I had a... Uh, uh, the the sound the sound blaster sound card but there were tons of different sound cards that came out in that time period um good old creative labs man so these days not so much a big deal but back in those days those sound cards had ports on them where you could plug in a midi cable the connectors were these uh appropriately enough called midi cables they were a five prong DIN connector, D-I-N connector. So what does D-I-N stand for? Why, it stands for Deutsch Institut für Normung, of course. Uh, that, by the way, is a national standards organization in Germany and the one that defined this particular standard for connectors. And there are a lot of different orientations for D-I-N connectors, not just the MIDI style. There are tons of different variations, including different layouts for five-pin connectors. But standard MIDI cables all have the same orientation because it's a standard. These cables didn't send variable voltage signals. So the old analog synthesizers, the way they generated music was all through varying voltage. That was kind of the, the, the secret sauce if you want to get down to the basic level of what's happening from an electronic standpoint. It's all about varying voltage to get different effects and create different sounds. But that's not how MIDI synthesizers communicate. 
all the information that MIDI synthesizers send is in binary. That's a zero or a one. With such a basic system, you don't have to vary voltage. You just have to have either voltage applied, which would be like a one, or no voltage applied, which would be a zero. MIDI messages, like I said, are in the form of bytes or eight bits. Coding with MIDI tends to be done in hexadecimal format, which represents nibbles. A nibble is half of a byte, so it's four bits. So with every four bits, you can use that to create a hexadecimal uh, figure. Hexadecimal is um, base 16. I mentioned it in a previous podcast. And the way you express base 16 is after you get past the number 10, you you typically start using letters like A, B, C, etc. Uh, so hexadecimal makes it easier to understand what each of those nibbles happens to be, it's easier to, to understand that compared to just looking at zeros or ones. Um, as it turns out, eventually you wouldn't have to worry about even working in hexadecimal because you would get MIDI editing software that would have a graphic user interface or GUI. So you no longer had to worry about even looking at just lists of hexadecimal figures, which would cause me to get a really severe headache and cry. So I'm glad that that's not a thing anymore. The MIDI protocol supports bit data rates of up to 31,250 bits per second. Information on a MIDI cable is strictly one-way only. So if you wanted to have two-way communication between various components, you would have to have two cables. MIDI equipment from this early era tends to have multiple ports with labels like in, out, and through. Now those labels tell you which direction information will flow from that port through a MIDI cable. So out means that data will move out from that port. If you connect a cable to that port, information will go out over that cable, and then you would connect the other end of that cable into the in port of some other MIDI component. So let's say I've got a controller, and I want to hook it up to a drum pad. My controller, I would hook the cable to the out port, and in the drum pad, I would connect that to the in port. That way... All the instructions I play on the controller will go out and into the drum pad. The through port, by the way, duplicates anything that's coming in through the in port. And the reason for that is if you want to hook up a bunch of components in sequence and you want all of them to follow the exact same set of instructions, then you hook up your MIDI controller to the out port, put it into the first device in its in port, then hook up a second cable to that device's through port into a second device's in port, and then both device one and two will follow the same set of instructions because the second uh, device is copying the same set of instructions that the first one is getting from your controller. And not every device out there, a MIDI-enabled device, has all of these ports. Some of them only have in ports. Some of them only have out ports. Uh, it just depends upon what the device is and how expensive it is, because the more features you add to these gadgets, typically the more expensive they get. So, because you're adding extra components into the electronic device. These days, you may encounter MIDI controllers and synthesizers that use USB or universal serial bus connectors instead of those standard MIDI cables. Those MIDI cables are, are more or less a thing of the past unless you're using 
antiquated equipment these days. And that's because many of these devices have an integrated MIDI interface that can accept the digital information directly without the need for that special cable. The information itself remains the same, only the the delivery of the information has changed. So the type of data hasn't changed at all. It's just the way it gets from point A to point B. The quality of a MIDI playback depends heavily upon the equipment you're using to play the file. So if you have a super sweet MIDI-enabled keyboard, the quality should be pretty darn good. If you're using a cheap piece of technology with a weedy sound processing capability, it might be less impressive. So for a long time, the MID, MID file format, was the preferred one for cell phone ringtones. The files took up a small amount of space and could allow a phone to play all sorts of songs, including popular ones everyone knows and not just the dozen or so default ringtones that seem to come with every phone. These days, storage space on phones is not as big a concern, and a lot of ringtones use other file formats, including MP3 files, so MIDI is not as big a deal on phones anymore, but it still has its place. Where? Well, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second, but first, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. Why did the MIDI protocols become a standard? Well, remember that Dave Smith created the first protocol in 1983, and at that time, computers and related equipment had a limited ability to handle data transfers. So this was an era before broadband and high-speed data transfer cables. The MIDI protocols allowed musicians to create detailed instructions on how a performance should be played and send it in manageable chunks of data, either to a computer or to other musical instruments. It was an elegant solution for a particularly tricky problem. The Atari ST, which debuted in February 1985, featured a built-in MIDI port and supported MIDI sequencer software, bringing the ability to record music into the home studio. This was a huge shift from the norm, where you'd have to rely upon a professional recording space to lay down tracks. Now with the right MIDI controllers and an Atari ST, you could create your own musical masterpiece, and other computers followed suit. And plenty of sound card manufacturers included support for MIDI connections. In addition, MIDI allowed people to record on multiple channels and then, because the data was all digital, you could mess with it after you recorded it. So you could not only tweak instructions to play back at a different pitch or a different tempo, you could also copy and paste sections, making a short drum track repeat the entire length of a piece of music, for example. Or you could grab a section of music and shift it to a different place along the overall piece. You could mix up a track, you could mash it with other MIDI tracks and come up with all sorts of interesting effects. Using a software-based synthesizer, also known as a soft synth, you can create virtual instruments. These software packages tend to have massive options in them, allowing you to replicate the sound of specific instruments just by selecting a few options. Using such a synthesizer, you could choose to play back a guitar riff on a synthesized 1954 Fender Stratocaster or a 1958 Gibson ES-335 or even a Cordoba C3M classical guitar 
Or let's say you want the keyboard part played on a classic Moog synthesizer, complete with all the faders and knobs. A good soft synth package will contain emulators for hundreds of different instruments, complete with all the options they came with. Plus, they frequently will offer up additional features that can be applied to the sound beyond what the instruments would support natively. The MIDI standard has had several revisions since its introduction. They tend to be backwards compatible with earlier versions, but not necessarily interoperable with each other. Think of them as branching pathways. For example, Roland created Roland's General Standard, or Roland GS, to add in additional instruments and features not supported by the original MIDI protocol. Yamaha did something similar with the Yamaha's Extended General MIDI, or XG. Both were compatible with the first generation of MIDI protocols, but they were not compatible with each other, and so there was a bit of splintering in what was meant to be a universal standard. Other refinements to the standard allow for things such as tying MIDI files to show controls, like lighting or motion controls. You could create a sequence of lighting cues tightly coupled with sound cues this way, automating the entire sequence. These sort of features are useful in everything from theatrical presentations to crazy parties. I imagine. Never get invited to crazy parties. But I've been to a lot of musicals. Other specifications allowed users to incorporate downloadable sounds into MIDI sequences or use alternate tunings for synthesized instruments. Now, normally these refinements were the result of collaborative efforts among various synthesizer manufacturers. So the MIDI standard is continuing to evolve today. People are still working on adding in features, and by people, I mean mostly various companies that are interested parties in continuing the MIDI protocol. So... Again, it's seeing people that are typically competitors get together to create a standard that works across multiple pieces of hardware, and that benefits the end user the most. It has really changed the world of music production. Back in the old days, you had to try and get big enough so that some studio will take a chance on you and allow you time inside a actual recording studio to lay down some tracks, or you would have to pay an exorbitant amount of money in order to do so. Now, with a small, relatively small investment up front, you can make a recording studio of your own and lay down all sorts of tracks. Now, you are limited in what your track is ultimately going to sound like based upon the type of playback equipment you can afford. The better the equipment, the better your your MIDI file will sound when it's played back. Otherwise, if you're playing it back on something that's fairly primitive, it's going to sound like it came out of a cheap imitation instrument, not a really well-synthesized instrument. Now, if that's the effect you're going for, it's not a big deal. Like, if you want to have sort of a retro kind of kitschy simulated sound... That's not that's not a big problem. But if you want something that sounds like, hey, that sounds like that's a real cello, then you want to shell out the big bucks. I can actually still pick out fake stringed instruments on even high profile uh, types of of soundtracks and scores and movies in particular. I'm looking at you, Pirates of the Caribbean and your synthesized string sections. I hear it, but it's really, really good, much better than it used to be. So the MIDI format has been incredible because, again, it was such an elegant solution, creating instructions on how to recreate a performance rather than recording an existing performance. 
and then being able to tweak that performance in any way you want so that you can make it better than the original playthrough was, or at least different. It's really interesting to me. So I want to thank Jesse for the suggestion. I really appreciate it. We're going to be doing a lot of episodes based off listener suggestions over the next few weeks, and we're going to do some more about music in the next couple of episodes. Think of it as a mini music arc of Tech Stuff episodes, uh, because I kind of wanted to group together thematically linked topics. So we'll talk more about music in the next episode, but that's all for MIDI for today. If you have suggestions for future episodes, maybe you want to get your suggestion in like Jesse did, send me an email. The address for the show is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle at both of those is techstuffhsw. Remember, we have an Instagram account. You can follow us on there and see all sorts of cool behind-the-scenes photos, plus relevant information that relates back to technology in general and this show in particular. And on Wednesdays and Fridays, I stream my recording sessions live on twitch.tv slash techstuff. I would be happy to have you join us. We have a chat room in there. You can join in there and chat with me and talk about how I mispronounce words and make fun of me. Or you can, you know, give me encouraging words too. I, I, I don't just take abuse. I also, I also like it when people are nice to me. And I hope that you will join us there and I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 